Welcome to From Betrayal to Breakthrough. I'm Dr. Debbie Silber, and today's guest is Dr. Terry Walls. Dr. Terry is an Institute for Functional Medicine certified practitioner and a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa, where she conducts clinical trials in the setting of multiple sclerosis. In 2018, she was awarded the Institute for Functional Medicine's Linus Pauling Award for her contributions in research, clinical care, and patient advocacy. You're about to be very inspired by my next guest. I'm having a conversation with Dr. Terry Walls, who had debilitating MS. She's going to share how she went from being in tremendous pain and barely able to function to biking 18 miles and so much more. If you have MS or know someone who does, you're going to get so much out of this episode. Here we go. We are in for a very special treat. We have Dr. Terry Walls with us. Of course, the show is about from betrayal to breakthrough and all different types of betrayal. Today, we are talking about the betrayal of MS, and I have the world's leading expert to help us talk about that. So welcome, Dr. Terry. Hey, thank you for having me. Of course. So you don't get a title like that, especially from me, (laughs) unless you've done some significant work around something. So tell us, please, why are we talking about MS? Tell us a bit about your story. So I have multiple sclerosis. And now in retrospect, my symptoms began during medical school in 1980, bouts of electrical face pain. That would get worse over the next 20 years. Then I developed weakness in my left leg. I, I was worked up and found to have multiple sclerosis. You know, I did my research, saw the best people, took the very newest drugs. Still within three years, I'm in a tilt recline wheelchair, and it's getting progressively more difficult to sit, more difficult to walk. And that's when I go back to reading the basic science. I developed theories that mitochondria drive disability. So I create a supplement cocktail, and that's helpful a little bit. I adapted the paleo diet, but I'm still declining. I discover electrical stimulation of muscles, add that to my regimen. And keep in mind, I'm so weak, I can do a 10 minutes of exercise. If I do anything longer than that, I just can't function. Fortunately, my, my mind is still clear, so I'm able to staff the resident clinic. I take a course on neuroprotection from the Institute for Functional Medicine. I now have a longer list of supplements. And then I had this really big aha. Like, what if I redesigned my paleo diet that I've been doing for five years based on all these supplements I'm taking and figure out where those things are in the food supply? So now I I have this very structured paleo diet, and that's really when the magic begins. I begin getting stronger. We advance my exercises. I start walking again. And then five months into this new way of eating, I really decide I want to try riding my bike again. And we have an emergency family meeting. Jackie tells my son, who's six foot five, 16 years old, Zach, you run alongside on the left. My 13-year-old daughter, Zab, you run alongside on the right and should follow. And I get on my bike and I bike around the block. That big 16-year-old boy, he's crying. My 13-year-old, she's crying. Jackie's crying. And of course, I'm crying. And after that, I bike a little bit more every day. And in October, Jackie signs me up for the Courage Ride, which is 18.5 miles. And I cross the finish line. Everybody's crying again. And this really changes how I think about disease and health. It will change the way I practice medicine. And it will change the focus of the research that I do. And I've made it my mission 
to teach patients that there's so much you can do to, that will change your disease course, to teach clinicians how to take care of these patients in a more holistic way. And we're doing the research to show that diet and lifestyle really make a big difference for people with MS. And I want to dive into the diet and lifestyle. But before that, before I hit record, we were talking about about trauma and about the ACE study. Let's just talk about where the, the tie in here might be. In my clinical practice, I certainly observe that people often have early life stress, early adverse childhood experiences. In my research, we started asking people uh, about that early life stress. And in a study of, I think it was 39 individuals, only one did not. Think about that. 38 out of 39 have severe early life stress. And I can talk about my experience. So when I'm nine, my sister's born, beautiful red hair. I just like her aunt and her grandfather, but she dies within 12 hours, which is very difficult. My mom goes into severe postpartum depression. She has a suicide attempt. And this, the grief that both of my parents experienced over the loss of my sister really wrenched our family. And I don't think my parents ever fully recovered from that loss. When I'm only nine, I don't really understand what's going on other than there's this enormous pain that we carry basically the rest of our lives. And when I have my children, that's when I begin to understand more accurately the depth of the struggle that my parents went through. And we know that any stressor is going to impact the body. Let's go a little bit deeper with that. How does stress impact the body and where would we see sure. it? So early life stress, the earlier that it happens, the more impact that will have in your brain at the hypothalamus and pituitary level. That will impact the hormones that govern your adrenals, your thyroid, your sex glands. It will also impact your inflammation-producing immune cells, the level of cytokines that you have. It probably impacts at the cellular level your anti-inflammation and anti-oxidative stress enzyme pathways. Your cells decide that everything is safe, and I can make my hormones, digest, uh, consolidate memories, do the maintenance work of daily life. If I, my cells see that I am not safe, then my cellular resources are directed towards mobility so that I can either fight the adversary flee the adversary, or if I've been captured, then I freeze and mimic death so that if I am dropped, I can run like hell. So your resources are either directed to be ready to run like hell, or if you're safe, then you can do the task of daily life, which means you cannot heal when you are in that fight, flee, or freeze mode. Any healing work, any maintenance work, the organism must feel safe. In short term, it's a beautiful process. It, it keeps us safe. It keeps us alive. In an experience, let's say, some type of trauma, betrayal, the people listening and watching, it's like we're keeping that system engaged for days, weeks, months, we're, years. We're stuck in that freeze, 
flee or fight, which prevents your cellular resources from being fully available for maintaining your body, healing your body, repairing your body, growing your body. Yeah. So then how, I know with MS, diet and lifestyle, we're such a big part of it. Walk us through, I'd love to, to hear how diet and lifestyle help you as well as just other tools we can use to release just and get rid of this trauma from our body and tell so our bodies that I, I, they're safe. So early on in my work with MS patients and complex chronic disease, and I'm stressing diet, lifestyle, stress reduction, exercise, and all of those are absolutely vital and people will greatly benefit from that. But my patients have also taught me to ask about these early life traumas. And not that I need to know the details. I just need to know, did that happen to you? I, and then my next question is, and what have you done to deal with that? What type of interventions have you done to try and heal and address that? And we talk about that there are a variety of tools that you can go investigate. Ignoring it is not one of them. Mm-hmm. For sure. Pretending it didn't happen is not one of them. Some people find EMDR to be helpful, emotional freedom tapping mm-hmm. to be helpful. There's emotional release trauma. Let's see, trauma release exercises. Those are really very interesting. And then a whole number of talk therapies that can be yeah, super helpful. And, and I talk a lot about forgiveness. Oh, I'd love you to talk about forgiveness. And you know what I love to, I would also love to know if you saw a difference in how they felt physically to the different modalities they were trying. Did you notice anything in your research? We don't have the answer to that yet. You collect the data, it takes a while to get it all analyzed. I can tell you from my clinical practice, people will do some research. You find out what's available in your community. Because remember, I'm in Iowa. and so I see people who are sometimes in, in a rural setting, so they don't have as many options from which to choose. People in a more urban setting will have more options. I think the most important thing is that you realize it's very difficult to resolve these issues on your own satisfactorily. Finding a professional who can help you explore and help you begin to resolve them in a way. And I could thing for myself, as I look back at some of my early traumas, and I had to go through a period of forgiving and forgiving the individuals who did hurtful things. But the biggest person I had to forgive was me. Because, you know, young people, I certainly made some decisions that I would regret deeply and spent years hating myself for some decisions that I made that were ones that I deeply regretted. And it was interesting, Debbie, that it was the birth of my son that finally let me realize that, you know what, I had to do everything in the past to get to this point. And I was so grateful to have my son. He gave me so much joy that I was finally able to let go of all sorts of traumas in my past, realizing, you know what, they all had to happen to make me who I am. The difficult times with my family, the difficult times as an adolescent and as a young adult, and the things that I screwed up, that all had to happen in order for me to become the 
the young woman who had my son and the person I am today. The beauty of perspective. Was there a certain practice related to forgiveness that really seemed to help you? There are so many different ways we go about it. And I just want to share that many people think it's a one and done. And I think it's, it is, it's more of a practice. It evolves in layers and stages. In my case, I'd seen a talk therapist. I had worked with a talk therapist through college, then through medical school. And then again, later when I was in practice, I went back to talk therapy again. And to be honest, Debbie, I don't know, I did not know at the time what were the talk therapy modalities that we were using. I don't know if this was cognitive behavioral therapy or acceptance and commitment therapy or gestalt. I do know that it was useful and it was something that I did over several years. So it took a few years then. Yeah, so it was not an overnight process by any means. And I would work with a therapist for about a year and I'd think, you know what, I'm doing well. And then I'd stop. And then I would hit another bump in line. I think a little talk therapy would be good for me and, and I'd go back. And was there going to back to the MS, was there a protocol for you like EMDR or tapping EFT or something that made a significant difference for you? My perspective is that it was the diet I went back to transcendental meditation, mm-hmm. gradually increasing my exercise. And when things all fell into place, there was a, this dramatic turnaround in my function that took place over a 12-month period. Yeah, At that time, I was not specifically dealing with the early life trauma. I had been doing that earlier. And I suppose the trauma at that point was not the early life trauma. It was, I'd gone from being athletic at age 45 to by 48 being a total climb wheelchair to by 52 being, I was, I could not sit more than 10 minutes. I was flat out exhausted. Otherwise I was in either in bed or in what's called a zero gravity chair with my knees higher than my nose. You're fully reclined. I could staff the resident clinic from my zero gravity chair. I ate my meals in my zero gravity right. chair. And so my family's certainly worried that I'm going to choke up my food. And I was beginning to have brain fog. I was having certainly much more dramatic levels of pain from the trigeminal neuralgia. So my trauma now at that point is, can look at the trajectory of my illness, the trajectory of my symptoms, which have been going on for 27 years, It was pretty clear to me I was on track to become bedridden by my illness, probably demented by my illness, and my trigeminal neurology would eventually turn permanently on. So that, and let me describe what those experiences were like. You had this electrical pain starting at your temple, coming down your jaw. My shoulder comes up, my head comes down. There's this involuntary grunt. And it's just an instant. I'm deaf for that moment. The world is gray. I can't see for that moment. The muscle tone in my legs drops a bit. So my knees buckle, although I never quite fell. And as it builds, it gets more and more intense. So that light sound triggers the pain. A light touch triggers the pain. A breeze triggers the pain. Chewing triggers a jolt. A swallowing triggers a jolt. Speaking triggers a jolt. So as this is peaking, 
And I'll show you what it looks like. Wow. If I'm trying to talk, the spasms come to try to initiate speech. It'd be sort of this. Oh, wow. It has to be so painful, too, and so frightening. Enormously difficult for my family to watch watch me going through that. Then they take me in for the pain clinic to get mm-hmm. injections. Probably mm-hmm. difficult. Light, sound, touch, trigger the pain. You have to try and hold still. Oh, my God. It's way worse than active labor, childbirth, broken bones. Or it's absolutely as described as the most intense pain experienced by humans. Wow. I was going to die better than demented in intractable pain. And I had rewritten my living well and durable medical power of attorney such that if I got to the point where I could no longer swallow, and that would happen when the pain turns on, I couldn't swallow, so I'd be drooling. And I can't talk because all I can do is, right. that there'd be no IV fluids. Okay. And there. You would die basically from starvation and dehydration. Wow. But the, it gave me a lot of comfort. Okay, I knew things would end. Right, just to be out of that pain. They, they wouldn't have to ask for assisted suicide. It would just be like, okay, yeah. you would ultimately go into coma from dehydration. Tell me what mindset has to do with healing. Because I imagine when you were sharing the story about riding the bike, the feeling of elation and just oh. joy that had to do something to you. It's really interesting. So as I'm reading, discovering, tinkering, adjusting my supplements and my diet and adding e-stem, I'm doing more and more self-care, redesigning my life around making sure I'm getting all this stuff done, not to get better, Debbie, because I had been told, I was trained, I believe that progressive MS only goes downhill. There are no treatments that restore function. So I, on the other hand, I have children, when I start all this, they're pretty young, they're getting older, and I know they're watching me, and either I model, you know what, life's not fair, but you do the best you can, and you don't complain, or you model giving up when life is hard. I want my kids to flourish despite really hard things. I have to be doing all that I can, even though life's terrible. And so that was my internal mantra. You know, look, your kids are watching. What do you want them to do when life is hard? So that that was pretty straightforward. And I'm very upfront with my kids. You saved my life. Knowing that you were watching me saved my life. It made it very clear what were the choices that I had to make. And I love that you're sharing that because so often with our community who's struggling to heal from betrayal and and with that comes all the stress-related symptoms, illnesses, conditions, disease. Sometimes they feel so distraught, so overwhelmed, they can't even imagine pulling themselves out of it. And sometimes the only motivation is the kids are watching. So if that's all you have... It's absolutely vital. It's powerful. And, And I was doing all of that. And I understood that recovery was not possible. It was just, okay, I'm going to show them how you live your life. You do the best you can in your circumstances. And then it was really quite interesting. Over that five-month period, I'm up walking again, first with walking six, then with one, then without. And I don't know what that means. I'm just focused on each day. Because when you have a progressive neurologic disorder, one of the things you do is you let go of the future. And just, okay, live each day as it unfolds. 
And it wasn't until I rode that bike, who knows how much recovery might be possible. And now I was like, how close can I get to normal? Although my kids laugh and they say, mom, you will never be normal. Uh, and of course, that's true. I'll never will be quite normal. But after that, I biked a bit further every day. And then, as I said, by October, Jackie said, yeah, let's do the courage ride, 18.5 miles. I had to rest a few times along the way. Once I finished that, I biked across the finish line. Wow. How did that feel? Oh, it was remarkable. It was stunning. Because when I started that bike ride, the farther side bike was eight miles. So this was a big jump. And Jack and the kids said, Mom, however far you get, we'll be fine. We'll go back. We'll get the truck. We'll pick you up. But however far you go will be a triumph. And I made, I rested at the first stop. And then at second place, we, I laid down on the grass. And we're having this discussion now. We're going to stop. I go, no, we're going to, I want to get back on that bike and we'll finish this. I was slow, but I finished. Wow. Now, okay. There's somebody with MS or somebody who knows someone with MS who is hearing this story right now, seeing what an inspiration you are to the MS community and the world at large. What do you want them to know? There's so much you can do. We have all sorts of programs to help you improve your diet, add meditation, add exercise. And yes, you can keep taking your disease-modifying drugs, but you also need to address diet and lifestyle to protect your cells so your cells can do a better job of repairing you, because they can. And we do clinical trials. In fact, we have a clinical trial right now for people who with relapse and remitting multiple sclerosis. We'd like to enroll you. You need to come to Iowa at month zero, month three, month 24. We would measure walking hand vision. We would also ask some surveys about quality of life. And we'd get a research MRI at time zero and time 24 months. And what that will tell us is your brain volume at the beginning and at the end. Because one of my hypotheses, and I'm very excited about this one, is that by teaching you how to improve your diet, we can get you to healthy rates of brain aging. Because people with MS, our brains shrink at three times the rate of healthy aging, which is why we have higher rates of frailty, falls, confusion, and early dementia. And so we're comparing three diets. One is you get to eat whatever you're eating now, your usual diet. Another one is a ketogenic diet. And the third one is a modified paleo diet. So we're very excited. I'm about halfway through on my recruiting. We're trying to get 156 people. So you need to be from the United States, Canada, or Mexico, and be willing to get to Iowa three times. It's so hopeful because I think most people just assume manage, manage the symptoms as best you can. And that's the end of it. And here you are giving so much hope to someone who's in tremendous oh, yeah. pain and so much more. We've sort of been able to help people improve their function. And the drugs do a really nice job of turning off the inflammation, turning off the relapses, the enhancing lesions. But they don't do a very good job with addressing fatigue, quality of life, anxiety, depression. And they have not done a good job of stopping that accelerated brain volume loss. 
And I'm not surprised about that. They can turn off enhancing lesions, but they've not been effective at preventing brain volume loss. That really is tied to diet and lifestyle. In our clinical practice, as we get people trained on diet and lifestyle, their mental clarity dramatically improves. So we're, we're very helpful that we'll see healthy rates of brain volume loss. Beautiful. And yeah, it sounds definitely like a multi-pronged approach. There is not just one thing that you can do for this. And it sounds like diet and exercise and managing your stress and sleep and the medications. And it sounds like they all have their right place at the right time. You want to do it all. Your brains, your brain and your spinal cord are very valuable. So you want to take care of them as thoroughly as you can. Absolutely. Dr. Terry, this was just so helpful. And I know you gave such hope to people struggling. Where can we learn more about you and your research and more? So the simplest thing to do is come to my website, Terry Walls, T-E-R-Y, Walls, W-A-H-L-S dot com. There'll be a gold banner across the top. Click on that and then you begin doing a survey that explains the whole process. And if you're eligible, we will contact you and begin the process of getting your diagnosis confirmed and in the study. I also encourage you to follow me on Instagram at Dr. Terry Walls, that's D-R-T-E-I Walls, W-A-H-L-S. You get to see what I'm eating, what I'm doing, and just get a glimpse into my daily life which I think is lots of fun. And I've had a few meals with Dr. Terry and I can tell you she is one healthy woman. (laughs) That's for sure. (laughs) I want to thank you so much. And for anybody struggling and suffering, there you go. You've seen it. You've heard it. There's tremendous hope. And you've just heard from a person who has done a fabulous job and is now helping so many others do the same. Thank you, Dr. Terry. Thank you so much. Once again, we've seen that it takes a multi-pronged approach to healing, whether it's healing from betrayal or managing MS. Stay in touch with Dr. Terry by going to terrywalls.com and we'll have all of her information in the show notes at thepbtinstitute.com forward slash podcast. Here's my biggest takeaway. Try a variety of modalities and see which ones work best for you. As Dr. Terry mentioned, here are a few of the practices she used as well as her patients in her clinical studies. EM DR, tapping EFT, trauma release techniques, transcendental meditation, TM, forgiveness practices, talk therapy, and more. What doesn't work? Acting like it's not there and ignoring it. That'll never work. Of course, if it's a betrayal you've been ignoring, chances are it's still lingering in the form of physical symptoms, emotional pain, and maybe it's just keeping you stuck. You deserve to heal, so let us help you by going to the PBT Institute, PBT as in post-betrayal transformation, institute.com, and check out our Reclaim program, where in 90 days, you can have private sessions with our certified coaches to help move the trauma out of your body, meet with other coaches who can help you deal with painful triggers, help shift your mindset, help you with a divorce, rebuilding your relationship, dealing with narcissism, and so much more. All while moving through the five stages from betrayal to breakthrough. Three months is nothing compared to how long you may have been struggling. So let's get you feeling better. See for yourself at the pbtinstitute.com and join us to heal and transform after betrayal. Thanks for listening. Can't wait to be with you next time. And here's to your breakthrough.